Steve, turn your mic on and let me, okay, Katie can hear me. Okay, great. Steve, turn your mic on. Let's see if we can hear you. Hi. Okay, terrific. All right. Um, all right, hold on everybody for a second. I'm going to send a um, tweet out on top of the original in, you know, announcement thing to let people know that for whatever reason, that link is not working and to, to join us now. So hold on a second. Okay. All right. So, um, the, I sent out a tweet that hopefully will let people know that for whatever reason, that original link wasn't working and to join us here. And while we're waiting, um, I want to let everybody know that, um, shipwreck is going to be joining us, but he's, um, he has some travel today and then he's staying with some folks. So he thought he was going to be able to join us, um, a bit, a little bit after eight. So he should be joining in. So, all right, wave at me again if you can still hear me, if, if everything's working well, and then we'll get started. Aha, great, fantastic. Okay. All right, so tonight we're going to talk about all the appellate activity that's been going on in the former president's cases, his criminal cases. So folks have sent me some questions about the civil case, but we're not going to be talking about those, except I mean, maybe we might a little bit around the edges, but principally we're talking about the appeals kind of action in the criminal cases for Trump. And we, we did get a bunch of questions and there's a lot to talk about. So we're going to try to keep this moving along at high speed here. The, a lot of the cases we can I think successfully do an individual spaces about them later. So I'm going to talk to ship about sort of doing, you know, one for each case, maybe as, as we move into the winter. Now, the other thing is some of these cases, stuff's going to be happening here in the next few weeks, you know, at a fast pace. So we, we might be um, doing individual spaces then on, on specific new developments. So, but to first to give people a time to um, join up and also to let people know who the speakers are for tonight. So like I said, Ship should be joining us. Kingmaker, who's a perennial favorite. He's been, I think, King, haven't you been on every Spaces that we've done? Just about. I think I missed one, but yeah. mostly yes. Mostly yes. So he's an old hand. And tonight we have our new special panelist, dun, 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 who is, you I will be you guys will be, you know, unshocked to hear, I guess, that this is my husband, Steve Gordon. Say hi, Steve. Hi. And uh, to give a breakdown of, you know, who's who, as you guys all know, Shipwreck is um, now doing defense on a lot of the January 6th cases. He was a prosecutor for a long time. I think it's 20 plus years and the last, basically coming up, I think on 10 years, he's been doing de criminal defense work. Um, so he's done both sides. I, when I was practicing law, was always a defense lawyer uh, in federal and state court. I've never prosecuted. I was a special agent before I became a lawyer. So to the, the, in, for security clearances, to the, so to that extent, I was government uh, agent at one time, but never as a lawyer have I, have I worked for the government. And... Um, Kingmaker, you've always also been either defense or civil, right? 
Yeah, yes. Um, mostly civil and uh, plain of and defense, uh, criminal, uh, all defense, but right. majority civil. Right. Okay. And then we've got asked Steve to join us tonight because he has done a lot of appellate work. So for those of you who don't know, Steve is my husband. We've been married 16 years now. And he is a fabulous lawyer. Um, he's a graduate of Harvard Law. He clerked for the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is Federal Court of Appeals um, in in Oklahoma. He was clerking there. Um, he was a federal prosecutor in D.C., the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. for ten years, and then he has been doing white collar defense and complex federal civil cases and. Uh, uh, cases on behalf of uh, various entities, government contractors, Indian tribes, etc., against the government. So almost all of his cases, sort of like mine, but but different uh, from mine, were against the federal government. Um, he's also a very, very experienced appellate lawyer. He's argued uh, cases in the federal appellate courts for many years, almost every circuit. Isn't that right, Steve? You just technically you don't have all of them, but you have almost all of them. That's right. Yeah. And he's argued twice in the Supreme Court. So he knows the ins and outs of the appellate courts very well. And that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about tonight. So um, the um, breakdown tonight, there's really four main cases. So here's what's happening. We're going to cover the case in the 11th Circuit. This is Mark Meadows's case which technically the appeal doesn't involve Trump, but as we talked about in our earlier spaces that covered the removal process, basically if one defendant in that case gets the case removed, the whole thing is going to move from state court to the federal court. So how Meadows' case comes out affects Trump's situation in that case. That case was recently argued in the 11th Circuit, so we're going to talk about that. And then we're also going to talk about the gag order up here in the DC case. So the trial judge imposed a gag order um, on Trump that he couldn't say certain things, he's not allowed to tweet certain things, etc. And then he then appealed that to the DC circuit. The DC circuit recently issued an opinion on that. And I think the former president and his lawyers are still trying to decide whether to try to get the Supreme Court to weigh in on that. I don't think they've made any filings on that yet. So that's the second appellate case. Third appellate case is um, the former president's lawyers have raised immunity defenses for him in the federal court in D.C. to all of the charges. So there are four charges in the indictment up here. And he's, he's claiming he has immunity for all of them because the charged conduct relates to things that happened while he was the president. So that uh, motion was denied by the district court, and so <clears throat> now there are proceedings pending in both the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and in the Supreme Court on that issue, and we're going to talk about why there are both, how can he appeal that now, why why do both courts have something going on, etc. And then the fourth case is the is a case that, again, the Trump is not a party to this case. This case is called Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R. But it is a case that the Supreme Court just granted cert on. We're going to talk about exactly what that means. 
but they just granted cert on it. They will be hearing that case. And it's a case that involves the statute that a lot of the January 6 cases have. And those uh, that statute is included in the indictment of Trump here in D.C. So two of the four charges involve that statute. So the prosecutors have been using that statute in a way um, that they have really never done before. And various of the J6 defendants have complained about that, and it has now bubbled its way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has said it will review it. So that's going to affect uh, Trump's case, assuming he doesn't win his immunity argument. (laughs) And um, so that case will affect him, even though his name is not on it, so I thought we might as well include that. One of the reasons we wanted to focus on that these are appellate issues is to talk about, help people understand that it is very unusual, actually, for there to be so much appellate activity in the middle of ongoing criminal cases. So people, you know, hear about appeals all the time. This was dismissed or, you know, the judge made such and such a ruling and that's being brought up on appeal. And um, I think the fact that the technical rules are very different for civil versus criminal. It's not something that people are generally aware of. So the basic rule is you can't appeal anything unless it's final. That goes for both the civil and the criminal side. And then because lawyers complicate everything, there's rules about, well, what means, what does final mean? What constitutes final? Um, And there are, more procedural ways to get to what lawyers consider to be a final decision on the civil side of the court versus the criminal side of the court. So um, on the criminal side of the court, the case is basically not considered final until the person has either pled guilty and been sentenced by the judge or has been found guilty by the judge or the jury and then sentenced by the judge. The final judgment in a criminal case does not issue until after the sentencing is has been announced. There are a couple of exceptions to that general rule. So, on the criminal side, basically at this point, the Supremes have only said that three things can absolutely be appealed before you're found guilty or plead guilty before there's a final judgment of the overall case. And those three things are the conditions that you're being held on or that you've been released under, which is why Trump was able to appeal the gag order ruling. Um, Or if you have immunity as a member of Congress under the speech and debate clause of the Constitution, which prevents the members of Congress for being prosecuted for things that they say as members of the Congress. Or if you have a double jeopardy offense, so you have an argument that you've already been put on trial for this offense and you can't be put on trial again. So the basic theory is that your conditions of release or conditions of detention is not something that you should have to wait to appeal until after your conviction because the appellate court can't do anything for you to amend or change or, you know, give you any relief for the conditions that you were held under after you've already been convicted, that, that, that just, 
doesn't, it's not fair to make the person wait. You should be able to appeal that while your case is ongoing. The other two grounds are really constitutional grounds. So the speech and debate and the double jeopardy, they're both straight out of the Constitution, and the courts have said they are the kinds of rights that people have that prevent them from being prosecuted in the first place. And therefore, it makes sense to let people appeal if the district court doesn't agree with you about that. It makes sense to let the person appeal that right away. Um, and usually when you appeal, it means that the case in the district court stops. The, the, the trial judge cannot continue to hold or conduct proceedings. Um, she can, in this case, Judge Chutkin is a woman, obviously, so she can continue to do some things like administratively your conditions of release continue, right? Let's say you're appealing on double jeopardy grounds and you've been released and you're not allowed to do certain things. Well, you know, you're not allowed to break the law. You're not allowed to, you know, skip the country, blah, blah, blah. Uh, those things can continue while the appellate court hears your case. But the district court cannot continue substantively to proceed with the case. The appeal, lawyers say it this way, the appeal basically divests the district court of jurisdiction, power, control over the case that moves to the appellate court. Um, so, but on the criminal side, that's really it for what you can appeal for sure, because the precedents say that you can based on the, the law that has been developed in the courts. Then there is another exception, which is sometimes the Congress will pass a statute that says that you have the right to appeal in a criminal case certain things, even though the trial hasn't taken place yet, you haven't been found guilty. And there are specific statutes. And one of those, as we discussed in the spaces that we did on um, the removal statute, is the question of federal removal to federal court. The statute specifically says that sometimes those cases can be appealed. If the district court does not agree to take the case out of state court and put it in the federal courts, that the person can appeal that to the appellate courts, which is why Mark Meadows was able to move his case up to the 11th Circuit. So, but basically that's it. Now, on the, over on the civil side, it, the law is a lot different. So there are more ways to get what lawyers think is a final decision or judgment in the case. So you will often hear, you know, well, this case, the, the case was struck out or the, the complaint was dismissed for X, Y, Z reasons, statute limitations or some other kinds of technical reasons. And that's very frequently done on the civil side. And if the judge dismisses the entire case at motion to dismiss stage for whatever reason, um, that can be appealed in the civil in the civil courts. Now, in theory, the same thing would apply in the criminal court. If the court were to dismiss the entire indictment, the government might be able to appeal that depending on what the issue is, but that almost never happens. So it's not really a fair comparison to the civil, but also on the civil side, you see what's called summary judgment. And there is no such thing on the criminal side. So summary judgment basically is a short way of finishing a case without going to a trial, judge or jury. The summary judgment basically says, if we look at all the facts of the case and we all agree on what the facts are, and it's clear that one person wins or one person loses because based on these facts, there's only one legal, co legally correct answer, 
then the case is given what's called summary judgment by the judge. And the law considers that to be final and that can be appealed. But there is no such thing on the criminal side. So and I get this question a lot. Well, why doesn't the you know, why doesn't the person just appeal this ruling by the judge in, in criminal cases? And it's because in criminal cases, the judge is not deciding whether or not you're guilty based on a specific set of agreed facts. The government has to actually prove those facts at trial, either to the judge at a trial or to a jury at a trial. There's no such thing as just agreeing to what the facts are and then, you know, the judge decides who wins and who loses. So there's no such thing on the criminal side. So for that reason, there are a lot fewer appeals on the criminal side of the courthouse. And so that we have all these appeals in the cases that involve the former president is really, really quite unusual. Um, so let's see, what which one should we start with? We want to start with the 11th Circuit case. Um Kingmaker, have you been following that closely? Did you listen to the oral argument? I did not have time to. Did you? I came in at midstream, and, but I heard uh, most of it, okay. I think. All right. So and, let me tell the folks that the argument went for 50 minutes, 5-0, which is longer than what's normally allowed. And I looked today, the arguments in the circuit that were made that same day that were shorter are posted now on the court's website. But for whatever reason, Meadows' case is not posted yet. But if you're interested in, in hearing the whole argument yourself, probably this coming week, I would think, since it was a long argument, they might have had some technical issues, you know, getting it ready to post. But that probably will be up on the circuit's website this week. So King, tell us, tell us what happened. Well, the, the issue uh, that uh, Meadows appealed was the district court's denial of his uh, removal petition. He tried to remove the criminal case brought in Fulton County, Georgia, state court. He tried to move that to federal court on the grounds that the conduct uh, alleged in the charges uh, was, were involved actions he did uh, as part of his duties and job description as a <clears throat> member of uh, the executive branch of government. He worked <clears throat> in the White House, chief of staff, and he said, everything I'm accused of doing in violation of Georgia law, I did pursuant to my job as chief of staff for President Trump. Uh, the district court denied that. The statute gave him a right to appeal, which he, he brought to the 11th Circuit. And the uh, court heard arguments la last week. And the public reporting in the mainstream media was that it didn't go very well for him, but I it, tend to discount what they have to say most of the time, but this the, one, it does sound like it didn't go so well. Uh, the, I, I found all three judges to uh, exhibit appropriate amount of skepticism as to his claims, but uh, surprisingly, they spent more time, I'd say the majority of the time, uh, questioning both sides on a, an issue that was not uh, appealed and not decided 
by the district court. That is whether the statute that allows for removal is limited to federal officials currently employed. That is, if you used to work with the federal government, even though you were charged with a crime for something you did when you worked there, this law, the argument goes, doesn't give you the right to remove. And the 11th Circuit, after, after the lower court denied Meadows' motion, uh, denied, uh, remanded the case back to, to the state court, uh, the 11th Circuit issued an opinion on an entirely different matter in which they, they held that a, another statute uh, similarly framed with the similar language and structured kind of the same way uh, applied to current employees and not past employees. And so the, that's what the court was most interested in is whether this case and this statute is distinguishable from what they decided uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, my, that's a novel issue. I don't think anybody, any court has, has decided that. I'm not even sure it's been argued. I haven't researched the federal removal that thoroughly, but, uh, the way they talked during the oral argument, it sounded like this was a first impression case, not only in the 11th circuit, but all over the country. Neither side could decide, could cite a uh, uh, definitive authority that went one way or the other on the question. And the, what I heard, from what I heard, I, I would be surprised if the 11th Circuit doesn't come down uh, holding that uh, that statute does not allow for removal by a prior, by a, a former uh, federal official who's not currently employed by the federal government. Uh, the, as to his, the merits of his, uh, his own appeal, I missed most of his, uh, his lawyer's, uh, uh, argument on that issue. Uh, so I can't say what reaction, uh, Meadows team got on the merits. That is whether or not the charges, uh, are such that it can be removed, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the the, the uh, state's lawyers uh, spent almost the entire time talking about the issue of past versus current uh, federal officials. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Ship, you've joined us. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. Yeah. But I do have a filing deadline I'm trying to mm. meet on a Sunday night, believe it or not. So my oh time, my unfortunately, goodness. is going to be limited. All right. So we decided to start with the 11th Circuit. And uh, I just think it's crazy that to say this statute doesn't apply to former officials. 
because aren't they the ones that are going to be getting sued or prosecuted for their actions? Leslie, they absolutely are, but uh, you can guess what the answer was, uh, which is uh, you need to go ask Congress to amend the law because we're bound by what it says. The, The words of the statute are what control. Right. But I mean, there's no dispute that they were federal officials at the time of the actions that they're indicted for. Right. The 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 controversy comes from the fact that there are there's an A part and a B part to 1442. Is that the right number? Yes. The A part uses the term federal official. The B part goes into detail that says persons who are federal officials and who or who were formerly federal officials and who are being sued for conduct that happened while they were a federal official. So the B part, which applies in civil cases, uh, calling for civil case removal, is specific and precise that it, it includes former officials uh, if, if the conduct that they are alleged to have committed, you know, injured somebody with uh, happened while they were federal official. But the A part, which applies to the criminal side, uh, doesn't have any mention of former officials. That's, so that's where the 11th Circuit, I think, is going. Yeah, that, that seems to me to be overly cramped. But, you know, we'll we'll see what they do. Right. So in terms of the effect on the president's case, the circuit is taking the the jump off point that they think for former is that you're a former official at the time you were indicted. That's what they're doing. Yes. The, the the time of the your status, your job title and status as of the time charges are brought, the indictment is entered. That's the key time to determine whether the statute, the removal statute, covers you. Yeah, the statute does not actually say that, though. Right, the way I read it, that doesn't oh, speak it, to when the time period is. Don't get me wrong. This the Eleventh Circuit is trying to read a whole lot into a, a <laughs> right. sentence in, in right. the statute. And, and uh, to the absence of a word, right, correct. at the same time. Yeah, exactly. So this is what I wanted to touch on this. this the, you guys, this is an example of how the appellate courts are, okay? They love to get hung up on this kind of little minutia that really has very little to do with what the case is actually about, and they will often go off on these frolic and detours because the, the people that we put on the courts of appeals, whether they're on the left, in the middle, on the right, have no political issues at all. They're invariably, not, not, not 100% of them, okay, but most of them are very smart people who like to focus on esoteric issues because they think it makes them sound even smarter than they already are. All right. So it's 
it's always just boggled my mind. You get into the courts of appeals and invariably the case changes from what it's about to something that is a tick on the flea, a flea on the tick on the tail of the dog, right? So that looks to me like that's what's going on here. They're more interested in this esoteric examination <laughs> of language for a statute that's never hardly ever used in the first place than they are in whether or not these people who were clearly were federal officers at the time of the events in question, whether they should be getting the benefit of the federal statute crafted by the federal government, you know, our representative body to protect the interests of the federal government from being prosecuted in the state courts. Like we're, we're so far away from that with this argument that it's absurd. Um, so that's, that's what's going on there. Now, Clark's case is coming behind Meadows, right? His brief isn't even due until Tuesday this week. So he will get an oral argument sometime in the spring. Uh, and and he, I think he has a, he probably will get a different panel, but I'm not sure of that. Put it this way. He, he could get a different panel, different mm -hmm. three judges. Uh, if he gets the same three judges, he's going to be running into the same brick wall that Meadows lawyer did. Uh, if, if he gets a different three, they may look at it differently. So, uh, and, and as we said in, we, we all agreed in prior spaces on the merits, uh, Clark probably has the best case for removal. On the facts. Yeah, I oh, think so. Yeah. yeah, he was a Justice Department official at the time. So, okay. All right. So that's um, that's what's going on with that case. So I want to do the gag order at the end so that hopefully we can make use of Ship's time. He's just dropped off. So I sent him a, a message to join back on again. Um, so in the D.C. case, case um, the immunity issue has spawned <laughs> cases in both the Supreme Court and in the Court of Appeals. So, Steve, I want to bring you in on this one. And can you sort of give us a quick and dirty of what's going on with that? Why is it in the two different courts? How does that work? How does it normally work, et cetera? You got to unmute yourself to do that. Steve? Steve, you got to turn on your microphone. I put sleep. I put Steve to sleep. My, <laughs> my apologies. Let me see if he's having technical difficulties. You guys, hold on a second. That's it. So technical difficulties. Yeah. Did you ask? You're the question that I asked oh. about the. Appellate courts, what's oh. going on in the DC court? Okay, your microphone's on now. So I wanted you to tell them what's going on with the why there's two cases on appeal and immunity situation one in the Supreme Court and one in the Court of Appeals. Like, what's going on? With that? Mm. 
Okay, so the uh, one case is the case against President Trump for uh, supposedly having interfered in the 2020 election. And that case is being appealed in terms of whether he has immunity uh, that would prevent him from being prosecuted at all. Uh, beyond that, you have uh, a uh, second. But why case. is it in? Why is it in both courts, the Supreme Court and in the Court of Appeals? Well, well, it's not in both courts at the same time right now. Currently, it's in the district court. The district court has ruled against his claim of immunity. He has appealed as he has a right to do that ruling to the D.C. Circuit, which is the next step in the Court of Appeals, in, in the appellate structure, which would then be followed by review to the Supreme Court. The uh, special prosecutor, meanwhile, has uh, sought to short-circuit the process by going directly uh, to the Supreme Court, asking the Supreme Court to take the case now and just basically skip uh, the Court of Appeals in the process. Right. So it's technically it's in the Court of Appeals and there are filings also at the same time in the Supreme Court because the special counsel wants to skip the circuit Court of Appeals and jump up to the Supreme Court right away. Right? Yes, that's it. Okay. So you got pleadings in both cases, but technically the Court of Appeals is the one that currently has jurisdiction. So... T tell us about this. How unusual is this? Why is the special counsel doing that? Do you do you and Ship think that's a, a good idea as former prosecutors for them to be doing that? Well, it's extraordinary, uh, but I think it's absolutely the right move for the special prosecutor to make here if you're the special you're prosecutor. I was asking both of you, Ship. Yeah, but you talked over uh, Steve. So, <laughs> well, well, I actually heard, I actually heard an interesting. Who's the Steve guy? <laughs> I actually heard an interesting comment um, um, by by um, Andy McCarthy, who said, "You know, there's an issue here of trying to, you know, take it by, you know, cert before judgment to the Supreme Court, and that issue is that if the Supreme Court agrees to hear it via cert before judgment, it's in the Supreme Court's." court as to what issues they want to hear. It's not limited to the immunity claim. The Supreme Court can say, well, we also want X, Y, and Z in addition to the immunity claim, since it's before us. So, for example, they could say, look, there's been a motion to um, uh, dismiss the 1512 filed in the district court, and oh, by the way, we've taken that up for certain. Why don't you tell us your theory of liability on the 1512 count? Since, you know, special counsel is distinguished at this point from the Department of Justice, which is going to be handling the Fisher case. And and so, as, as, as McCarthy said, Smith may find himself inadvertently having the merits of his substantive claims evaluated by the court, along with the immunity question, which he didn't want to do. He wanted to get, because it'd be much easier for the court to throw out the 1512 
before a verdict than it would be to throw out guilty verdict after the fact, just from a perception standpoint. I actually believe, and I could be wrong, I actually believe that's why the court took up the 1512 case. If there are five votes to throw out 1512, the court would rather do it in a case not named U.S. versus Trump. Right. I agree with that. And we, we haven't briefed the audience yet about what the 1512 uh, is. So um, we're, we will get back to that, folks. So don't worry. I'll circle back around to that. So the there's some historical precedent for this uh, question of, you know, taking the case now versus later versus the hell of a hurry that we seem to be in. Right. So one thing that's a little unusual, I find, about the former president's cases is that the courts are in a very big hurry to try them. And normally they would not be moving on such an expedited schedule. So let's talk scheduling for a minute. Um, Steve, we, uh, Steve and I looked at the, the document stuff this afternoon. And um, give us some historical perspective and also some view on like how normal is the scheduling issue here. Well, the scheduling is quite extraordinary. Uh, typically, when something goes to the uh, D.C. Circuit uh, pursuant to the normal schedule, it's about uh, three to four months for it Do to we have Steve? fully briefed. Steve, you got Can I can hear Steve. Ship, can you not hear him? I cannot hear him. I need to drop. Yeah, turn your mic off. Sometimes that helps. King, can you hear Steve? Yes, I can. Okay. Can anybody else, can people hear Steve? Wave at me if you can hear him. Yeah, people can hear you. Go ahead, Steve. So the uh, briefing schedule that the court has set in the immunity case uh, is uh, extraordinary. In fact, uh, it, it's uh, sort of unbelievable. It's so quick. Um, well, you got cut off there because ship interrupted as he's wont to do, I will say. Um, so you were saying the normal schedule for briefing in the circuit is about how long? It's three to four months to get all the briefs filed. And then you've taken a look at what they've directed in the immunity case. And it's on the order of all of it to be done in less than one month, I believe. Right. It's like the first brief, the special counsel asked for expedited hearing in the district's DC circuit. And the circuit, I think, said the first brief is due the 23rd of this month. The second brief by the government is due the 30th. And the reply brief is due January 2nd. So it's... Um, you know, it's less than a month from start to finish. And then they're going to let the parties know if they're going to have oral argument. But it's, you know, it's, it's way less than half of what it would normally be, right? Uh, uh, way less than half. This is extraordinary. Not to mention that they've just ruined everybody's holidays. Right, exactly. Normally they don't do that to lawyers, but here they totally are. So, but... Um, 
Steve, as you said, the special counsel filed a request in the Supreme Court for them to take the case and basically skip over the D.C. Circuit. So do you think that's influencing what the circuit is doing? Yes, I have a hard time understanding why the D.C. Circuit has adopted such an extraordinarily quick uh, schedule, uh, absent uh, the impact of the petition to the Supreme Court to take it directly. In other words, I think that the D.C. Circuit is saying, well, if you let us have a shot at it in the meantime, we'll get it done very quickly and it won't delay things uh, all that long. Right. So talking about delaying things all that long. So, you know, everyone knows that the election is next November. Right. So less than a year now. And that Judge Chutkin has set a March trial date for this case, March 4th, I think it is. Um, now, typically, then, if a normal appeal went forward in the circuit, it wouldn't be decided before the trial date, right? That's correct. So, but also, if in the case, if the Supremes jump the circuit, that's not enough time for them to decide it before March, either on a normal schedule, right? No, if the Supremes decided it on a normal schedule, uh, we'd expect a ruling sometime before the end of their term at the end of June. Right. So even if they take it now. Um, so one of the things that I looked at today was what when the Supreme Court takes a case, they say when they're taking it and once they agree to take it, then the rules dictate when the party's briefs are due. But when the oral argument is, is something that is scheduled independently by the clerk's office. And it seems that, and the Supreme Court, so you guys know, operates on an October to June term. This is an old-fashioned word that the appellate courts have always used. And the term runs from October to the end of June. And so to get on the current term, meaning to get the case briefed and argued and decided by June, obviously takes a, you know a certain amount of time. And it's similar. It's about four months if you look at the court's rules. So that means, and obviously they need some time to dis debate it and make decisions and write opinions and so forth. So when we looked at in the past what the court has done, they pretty much have, when they've granted cases that they're going to take, to get them into the term that they're on, it looks to me like they have to have agreed to take the case no later than mid-February. It might even be a little earlier. It might be like February altogether. So here we are at the end of December, and um, the special counsel wants them to agree to take this case. So one way of looking at it would be that they kind of had to do that if they wanted to get the case in front of them for this term. Because if they waited for the circuit, no way was the circuit going to decide by February 1st. Do you follow me, you guys? Yes. The, the, there's, when you get through with your thought, I've, I've, there's a, another context that uh, we need out on the table here, okay. which so I think is driving everything. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. So let me let Steve and I finish up with the scheduling here. So. Right. So here's the situation. This 1512 case that Ship was referring to, as I said at the beginning, involves a statute that is 
Trump's D.C. trial is going to be involved with, too. He's going to have the same problem with that statute. And in fact, he's already filed motions about it that the other J6 defendants have had. So the Supremes have just granted cert, which means they've agreed to hear the case. So when you're in the Supreme Court, you file a petition for cert, meaning please hear my case, because very few cases have the right to an automatic appeal to the Supreme Court. You have lots of rights to automatic appeal to the circuit courts of appeals, but not to the Supremes. So you got to go and ask them, mother, may I basically, will you please hear my case? Then they review all of that. You brief all of that. The other side briefs it if they want to. They consider it. They don't hear oral argument on that. They do not. But they, you know, they evaluate it. And then you have to have four justices agree that, yes, we want to take this case, not five, just four to take the case. Once they say, yes, we agree, we're going to hear this case, they issue an order. And they did that in this Fisher case, which involves this statute, 1512. They did that last week. That means basically the four, normal four months that start that briefing can start now which is early enough, it's before that February time period I was talking about. That's early enough that Fisher will be heard, it should be, in the ordinary course, briefed and argued and decided between now and June. Okay, so, but the special counsel is in the position that if Trump's appeal in the circuit on the immunity issue goes forward in normal time, there's no way he can, he, the special counsel, can go through the whole circuit's opinion and get it in front of the Supreme Court for this term if the circuit takes the normal amount of time. So, but also the special counsel has the problem that even if they jump the circuit, the he wants the Supreme Court to decide quickly whether they will agree to take the case to grant the cert petition quickly also because we're at, you know, mid-December here, right? In the ordinary course following the Supreme Court's ordinary you know, period of time, they would not probably be able to grant the cert petition before this kind of loose February time deadline would come. And that would push the case to the next term. That's the, the consequence. It would mean that they could still do all the briefing over the spring and in the summer. Like the court starts hearing cases in October, the first week of October, they hear cases the first week that they open because those cases have been briefed and granted cert and briefed again and scheduled over the spring and summer, even when the court isn't technically sitting, the clerk's office can still do those things. So when they come back the first week, they have a full line of arguments and the next week, in the next week, cases that have been briefed over the previous year. But Unless one or both of these courts agree to hear this immunity argument like right now and decide it, I see no way that the immunity issue could be decided in the court's current term by June 30, which would mean it wouldn't come down until October or November. The, the earliest they could maybe even argue it would be October, right? So uh, although the election seems like a long time from now, next November of next year, the court's calendars are creating this pressure. And then on top of that, you have this, what I think is an artificial pressure from the trial date that Judge Chudkin said in March for the special counsel to want all of these things decided so that they can keep that March trial date. It, it's, it's, it's even more chess-like. Uh, it, it's like the special counsel is playing a game of chess. And right. he's been blocked 
by at about two different levels. Uh, he's got a March 4 trial date for his D.C. Uh, election interference case against Trump. Uh, that's an extraordinarily quick trial, right? Concerning the amount, the volume of discovery, and the complexity of the issues in that case, but he's got it. He's trying to hang on to it at all costs. That's why he's uh, trying to move heaven and earth to get either the Eleventh Circuit or. Uh, preferably the Supreme Court, to decide this really fast so he can keep his March 4 trial date. What happens if he can't get a decision that quickly, quick enough for him to keep his March 4 trial date? Well, the next trial set is in Florida. That's Smith's case also. This is on the uh, Mar-a-Lago document, document case. Yeah. It's, in, it's scheduled for May trial. Uh, the D.C. trial is going to last two, three months or longer. So if March 4 gets delayed, gets pushed back, he bumps into his own trial in Florida that he's got fixed. So it, so unless he gets that move back further and he finds a window to to get the uh, D.C. case put into, say, in the summer. Uh, he's, that case isn't going to be set for trial until shortly before or after the election. And, he, and in the meantime, uh, Fulton County, the prosecutor there, Fonnie Willis, has asked the court, for an August 24 trial date for that case. So if Smith loses his March 4 trial date, just standing in his shoes, he's looking at, at, at the earliest, a trial after the election or shortly before the election. But probably into 2025, I think, because if you look at the Supreme Court term, if he can't get that case into this term, and he's really only got until February to do that, right, uh, assuming the normal rule applies, then then he's looking at, at the earliest in the 2024 Supreme Court term. doesn't start until the first week of October, right? Even if he's the first case to be argued in October— they won't. They won't issue a decision until November or December, right? Or like, and then it has to go back to the district court and pick up where we started, where where we stopped, because well, that's the other problem. Yeah, that, that case is stopped. Is stopped. It's stopped. Right. Dead. Right. Stopped. And if you get the ruling in February, you've got nearly two months of dead time. Right. That he has to make up, and he has no time to, to make up that loss. Right, exactly. right so exactly. He's going to lose his March 4 date. Right. That's, I think that's so a given right I've now. thought all along that March 4 date is dead, but it's fascinating to see the procedural moves. So let me, let me bring Steve in here again. Steve, are you there? Take your, turn your mic off. So tell us about the sort of the historical precedent for this kind of thing. Well, the, the historical precedent that's been cited is the Nixon case in 1974, 
And the, the Nixon case in 74 moved very quickly. Um, the petition uh, for, to the Supreme Court to take the case came at the end of May. And the Supreme Court granted that petition and said, we'll hear argument in the middle of June. So they said all the briefing was going to be done uh, within uh, just over a month, about, about a month and a half. And then they issued the decision about 16 days after argument, as I recall. So that was an extremely fast uh, timeline. They can move that fast if they have to. They moved about that fast in uh, 2000 in the Bush v. Gore uh, election litigation. But there's a big difference in the Nixon case in this sense. In that case, uh, there was a trial scheduled in September for Nixon's aides, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and the like, but Nixon himself was not charged. And the issue was whether Nixon had to cough up the tapes whether Nixon as a third party had to provide evidence that would be relevant to the pending criminal charges. Here, of course, Trump is the defendant, and th that gives him a lot bigger stake. And we're talking about immunity, uh, which is an unprecedented issue in, in the sense that the Supreme Court has never ruled on it before. There's not really any precedent that guides it. Right. They've got this other Nixon case from the 80s that talks about the civil liability, but the Supremes have not said yet whether a president has immunity from criminal prosecution for acts undertaken while he was president. So the special counsel cited that Nixon case in the 70s for as an, you know, an example of why the court can and should move quickly. But it doesn't seem to me to be that directly that directly on point. Um, that in that case, well, if I can jump in, yeah. if I can jump in, there's two other issues from the Nixon case that are unique. First of all, uh, I was around for cert <laughs> King, back wait, then. Hold, hold on, Chip King, you were around then. This is what Steve I, said to I me. Was, He's like, This is just like Nixon. I'm like, What are you talking about? That's right. I was <laughs> around, I remember it, it yeah. well. Uh, I was a young lawyer following it closely, and uh. The, one of the, the biggest issue that, of the difference I see is that the defendants in that case, the uh, Ehrlichman, Halderman, and the other aides, uh, looking, staring at a, 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 an upcoming trial date, they wanted the tapes too. They, they believed there were exculpatory statements in the tapes that they could use to defend themselves. So it, it was really a due, partly a due process uh, driven decision because how do you try those guys without letting the jury hear right, the evidence. firsthand yeah. evidence yeah. for yeah. or against them? Right. So Steve and King and Ship, you weigh in here too because you're an old guy too. I think I'm the I'm I'm holding down the average age at this point. Uh <laughs> yeah. The the well, there's there's one other factor there too, in addition to the fact that. Uh, well, is that both sides asked for cert pending judgment. It wasn't just right. one side. The, the Both sides asked the court to take the case quickly. And for some of the, for the reasons that have just been expressed, particularly Kingmaker's reason, which is that, that it was a due process issue for third defendants facing trial, not Nixon. Um, um, and then the other issue was it was an 8-0 decision with no dissent and no concurrence. Right. 
that allowed Berger to crank out the decision relatively quickly. And you may have to drop what off as a do... speaker and ask to add in again if you can't hear him. Who, no, I'm Kingmaker. He can't hear you. Same Kingmaker. thing. Kingmaker, drop off as a speaker yeah. and ask me to add you back. That usually fixes it. So you had uh, so so you have an 8-0 decision. Rehnquist does not participate because he'd been in the Department of Justice at the time. You have an 8-0 decision, no concurrence, no dissent. Berger is able to crank out the, the majority, the only opinion in 16 days, as Steve pointed out. What would how would how would you do that in a six three split decision <laughs> with four opinions? Right, <laughs> right. So let me ask the three of you. We're, we're generally do you guys a think lot of that's the, persuasive. The, then that seventy four precedent. I mean, the special counsel relies on it to say basically, oh, we should hurry up for all these reasons. Steve, what do you think? Well, I think the seventy four precedent is very persuasive in terms of the fundamental issue, which is, is this an important enough? issue that it should go straight to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court should decide it as promptly as it could. Uh, I think the answer to that is clearly yes. And I think the Nixon is, case is a good precedent for that. Whether it would be decided on exactly that same uh, expedited time frame uh, is a different question. I think here the time frame would be a, a, a little bit slower, um, but, but still expedited. Now, that leads back into uh, the point that Kingmaker made earlier, let me explain, which is that even if the uh, Supreme Court were to grant uh, cert before the end of December, they've asked for a response from Trump before the end of December, and they could rule on it very promptly thereafter, I would expect them to give at, at least 30 days, if not more, uh, to uh, Trump to file whatever pleading he's going to file, uh, a, a comparable period of time, maybe a little bit shorter, uh, to the special counsel, and then time to re for reply to, to Trump. And that's going to take us into February, uh, late February, perhaps early March, before the briefing is even done. And then you're going to have to have argument after that, and you're going to have to have a period of time to allow the Supreme Court to deliberate on it and render a decision. So even uh, assuming a, a very aggressive schedule, the Supreme Court probably doesn't rule on it uh, until April at the earliest, and possibly May. And th that means, as Kingmaker pointed out, that the uh, current trial date of March 4th is, you know, out the door. Uh, now, so that, we all we all know that they could move faster than that if they really want to, right? Like they could give the lawyers, as the circuit has done, ridiculously short um, time frames for turning in their briefs. But, you know, I think the Supremes are going to be less likely to do that, right? But uh, this is an unprecedented case of huge constitutional significance. I mean... Uh, strip out the personalities. The question is, in what circumstances can the President of the United States be held criminally accountable for actions that he took while he was President of the United States? That's a huge constitutional issue. The Supreme Court wants to give it due deliberation. They don't want to rule on that based uh, on rushed briefing and decision-making, if they can possibly avoid it.
Well, and you made the point to me recently, I thought this was a good point that, you know, when they rush in cases that are that high profile is when they look the worst, right? Like that was part of the problem with Bush v. Gore. The, the reasoning in that case is not as pristine right. As, right. as it is in most other cases because they were extremely rushed. So I think that the Supreme Court is going to say, you know, we're not going to rush this and be driven by the uh, unru- the deadline that Tanya Chutkin has arbitrarily set for one to start trial. You know, we'll move it along. Uh, we're not going to try to delay this. You know, Trump clearly, let, let's talk bigger picture for a second. You know, uh, uh, from a defense perspective, delay is in your interest because if they can su- successfully delay the litigation until after November, and if Trump gets elected, which is a distinct possibility, then Trump, as the president, could direct the Department of Justice to drop this prosecution and the cases go away. Well, that's what the special counsel is afraid of, don't we think? But let me ask you all three of you guys, Ship and then King and then Steve, do you think that there's any possibility that this D.C. case gets tried before the election? Ship? For me, absolutely not. Right. No. I, I, and I've said that right. for months. Impossible. I, I just looked at the yeah. calendar. And, and a big issue we haven't touched on yet, there's another level here. That is, Smith indicted the Florida case first. Yeah. Didn't get a judge that he wanted, has had difficulties procedurally as a result. He then runs off and indicts the D.C. case and persuades the D.C. court to set the trial ahead of the Florida case. And in doing so, steps on several pretrial filing dates in the Florida case. Right. Which, you know, co- you, you puts puts the Florida judge in the position of having Trump's lawyers in trial in D.C. at the same time period that they're supposed to be doing pretrial matters in her case, which was already set. And which involved classified that information. Has, so, you know, yeah. That has hacked her off to no <laughs> end. So what did she do? She vacated all the dates except her May 24th trial date. And she said, we will take up the May 24th trial date on March 1st, meaning she's not going to move that. What what I think Smith was angling for, he's dicking around with discovery in the Florida case in order to force that trial date to move. So he can shift Which would then again chutkin the ability to move the March trial date to late May. When it, that might not even work if he can't get one of these appellate courts to rule on the immunity thing. Well, that was before he started right. all this stuff in the appellate yeah. court. I, I think that was, you know, he when he, you know, Kingmaker said he was playing chess. I think what he was doing, he was trying to lure Cannon into moving the Florida trial date so Chutkin could move back the March trial yeah. date. All right, so let me shift to Cannon. But Cannon is not going to give up that date, yeah. meaning Chutkin. When she has, when she's forced to vacate the March trial date, which she's going to be forced to do so, she can't move it to May. The only thing she can move is move it to August or September, and I don't think she'll have it, even without the complications of the Supreme right. Court. All right, Kingmaker, your turn. Is that case going to trial in March? No way, <laughs> and it will. It will not go to trial before the election. Right, I don't think so either. Steve, your vote. You think it's going to trial in March? No, I don't think it's going to trial in March. I think that uh, Judge Chutkin will push very hard to get it to trial before uh, uh, the election in November, 
even if it means stepping on Judge Cannon's toes. Yeah. I, I, I agree that uh, Ship has made excellent points, but I think that, that uh, there is such intensity on getting this case to trial um, that we're going to see more conflict in, in that uh, area, assuming that, that the Supreme Court lets the case go forward. Now, so here's the thing. None of the pleadings talk about the election date, right? Like we're talking about these procedural moves and this normal schedule versus the expedited schedule with reference to the election. But that doesn't show up anywhere in any of these pleadings. So it's sort of like a subliminal issue. But I mean, everyone is still working with that in the back of their minds, right? Don't we all agree? All these judges, all these lawyers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so Ship, um, tell us. Can I? I want to address. I want to address one question. And then, unfortunately, I do have to get off. I've got a couple hours left for my midnight filing deadline. Um, I don't think, and this hasn't been mentioned yet. You know, the court grants. So let's talk about. Well, the that's 15, what I was going to ask you. Tell people case. what that's about in a nutshell. Okay, so section eighteen U.S.C. section fifteen twelve is the obstruction of Congress count that has been employed against more than three hundred January six defendants. It in effect turns potentially misdemeanor conduct of trespassing or property damage into an obstruction of congressional proceeding felony with a twenty year mandatory potential maximum. Penalty. And it jacks up the sentencing uh, guidelines too. And, and it takes, you know, the sentencing, the cases from if they were misdemeanors, a maximum of one year into a guideline range of between three and a half to five years, just depending on various potential aggravating factors. And the first case three. So only one judge out of 15 agreed with the defense position that the statute is inapplicable to the conduct that the government is applying it to and dismissed the count. And that was Judge Nichols. He dismissed the count in a matter of he dismissed the count in an opinion in the case of United States versus Garrett. And then after that, he dismissed the count in seven other cases before him based on his ruling in Garrett. Three of those cases were U.S. versus Miller. Or it was Garrett Miller. I'm sorry. U.S. versus Miller. Garrett Miller is the defendant's name. U.S. versus Miller, U.S. versus Lang and U.S. versus Fisher. Now, I'm not exactly sure how they you know, those cases then proceeded to the appellate court. Uh, where the government appealed the dismissal, and the Fisher case was the first one to be briefed and argued and a decision to come down. So U.S. versus Fisher, uh, on the issue of Judge Nichols' dismissal of the 1512 count, produced a three-opinion decision, the result of which was a 2-1 reversal of Judge Nichols and a return of the case to the district court for trial. But the three opinions are incoherent. Right, incomprehensible. The worst appellate decision I have ever read in my career. It's, it's, it's an right. abomination. So the, the three judges three judges take three different positions on the same question. And one judge introduces another issue regarding the definition of corruptly that wasn't even addressed in the briefs. So that case, and, 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 and the court at the same time reversed the other cases and sent them back. So Fisher... Lang and Miller all file cert petitions with the Supreme Court. And all three cert petitions have been pending. Well, they actually filed last summer. The government initially declined 
the Solicitor General's office declined to file a response. And then I believe it was in August or September, the Supreme Court ordered the Solicitor General's office to file a response, which is generally an indication that the Supreme Court's more interested in the issue than the government is. So the uh, Solicitor General's office filed a response to the cert petitions, which then the cases at that point are, are up for determination on the cert petition. Will the court take the case or, or reject the case? It was set for conference where they make those decisions December 1st. There was a, a court conference December 1st. All three cases were listed for that conference, meaning they would be taken up. The, the judges would decide to take them, reject them, or relist them for a later conference. In other words, they're not prepared to decide. December 1st was the day Justice O'Connor died, and the judges' conference was canceled. And all of the cases that were set for conference on December 1st were relisted for January 8th. However, out of nowhere, for no particular reason, on, I think it was the 13th or 14th, um, the court issued an order, issued a series of sort of just ordinary orders that morning, one of which was, oh, by the way, we're going to take U.S. versus Fisher, one of the three cases. And I will say this, based on my knowledge of these three cases, I've dealt with all the lawyers and I've read all the cert petitions, Fisher's the best case for the defense. First of all, it's the best written case. And Fisher himself, as a defendant, had the best facts for 1512 not being applicable to his alleged conduct. So that was the case that the defense bar was hoping the court would take. And sure enough, that is the one they take. And I, I think it's not only that, but on the cert petition for Fisher is a, an experienced Supreme Court practitioner named Jeffrey Green out of the University of Chicago Supreme Court Clinic. He's argued many cases before the court. So they took up the case with a well-written cert petition, good facts for the defendant, and an experienced advocate at the Supreme Court level. Now, where this gets interesting is they did that the morning after they directed the Trump campaign to respond to the special counsel's request to take the immunity issue uh, on cert before judgment basis. And skip the I, meaning, I meaning that it skips that the circuit. Those two things are not Right, I agree. Because the 1512 statute is half the special counsel's case against Trump. And it is the heart of the special counsel's case against Trump. If you take the 1512 counts away, if U.S. versus Fisher ends up in a reversal and the Supreme Court says the government has used an overexpansive definition in applying 1512 in the same way that it has done the last three times it took up obstruction cases, you know, the Arthur Anderson case was similar. The Yates case was similar. Uh, I can't remember the name of the third one. But three consecutive cases where the court has taken up obstruction cases where the government used expansive definitions it reversed and, sent up and, and, and overturned the convictions. I, there's no question in my mind that the court is looking at taking what took the Fisher case. I think it's going to take the immunity case, and I think it's going to track them together. Because either the, if Trump wins on immunity, his case is over. If, if Fisher wins on 1512, the case, the special counsel's case is decimated. It's not, it's not going to accelerate Fisher's case, how would that be fair to Fisher? 
Fisher's case is going to get briefed and argued in the ordinary course, which will probably be March or April, probably March briefing. I think the last scheduled argument for this term is the is April 29th. So it would have to be argued the last two weeks of April. Right. It's not going to be decided until June. So why would Fisher be on one track, but the immunity case be on another track when either or could potentially, you know, gut the Trump case? If if the special counsel wins the immunity case and the government wins the Fisher case, then the Trump count the Trump case is is, is un, unaffected. But I don't see them putting those two cases on different tracks. Right. It doesn't make sense if you're trying to do a coherent sort of formulation of the law. Steve, what were you going to say? I don't necessarily agree um, in, in this regard. I agree with everything that Ship just said, except that I don't think that the Supreme Court has to decide the applicability of the 1512, the obstruction of justice, at the same time it decides immunity. Suppose, for example, it decides immunity separately and it decides it on a faster track. If it finds in, uh, in favor of, of immunity, then the case against Trump goes away. If it rules against immunity, then the case against Trump proceeds. But uh, so suppose the case against Trump proceeds and then a couple of months later, but before the end of June, the court comes out and says, 1512 doesn't apply in these circumstances, that it doesn't apply to the certification of the presidential uh, election and alleged attempts to interfere with that certification. Uh, you know, there's nothing that's inherently wrong or impossible about that. That would just mean it would throw a monkey wrench into what was then the ongoing prosecution of Trump. So I, I don't see that the Supreme Court will feel compelled to link the two at the hip. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that, Steve. I, I don't. I think just, you know, sort of as a practical matter, without saying outright they're doing so, I just think they're more likely to do so. Sounds like you both uh, agree, uh, though, that they're not going to expedite Fisher. They might expedite um I can't. I can never imagine the court expediting Fisher to right. have an impact on the Trump case. That just that's beyond the pale. Right. I, I agree 100. percent But I, I don't forget that Trump has another motion to dismiss pending before Judge Chutkin. She has not ruled on this, and that is the Fisher interpretation of 1512. That includes the Fisher interpretation of 1512. So if you're sitting, if you're Judge Chutkin, if you can't put that trial back on, whether the immunity issue is decided or not, you can't even think about trying that case until the Supreme Court decides Fisher. Because you could end up trying that case having the the Supreme Court overrule the 11th Circuit on Fisher, and you're back. You have to go back to the drawing board and have a new trial. Uh, no trial judge is going to risk that. Right. So, so that people understand, if the Supreme Court rules on something, 
and where they say the government's theory is too aggressive, the we don't think this is the right interpretation of the statute or it violates the Constitution or whatever, in Jones's case. And meanwhile, you're still in trial or you haven't even gone to trial yet in the district court. You get the benefit of every decision that the Supreme Court makes in your case as long as your case is still live, whether it's pretrial, you're in trial, you've already been tried, you're up on appeal, right? If the Supreme Court changes the law while your case is live, you get the benefit of it. And then there's complicated rules I will not bore you with that govern whether you get the benefit of a Supreme Court decision retroactively after the fact or if you're on habeas review, blah, blah, blah. But the baseline law would be as long as Trump's case is behind Fisher, which it is, he'll get the benefit of the ruling in Fisher if it's a defense favorable benefit. So, yeah, so Judge Chutkin would be faced with trying to decide to go forward while that case is still pending. Right. Fisher's still pending. Uh, in the, So let's say she tries to get a trial date in July, but. Fisher, you know, had, doesn't come down in the term or she's trying to get a trial date in May. She's bumped Judge Cannon's date um, and the Supremes still haven't ruled. So, you know, it's it's just messy all the way around. But the to me, the whole thing stacks up every time as this artificial trial date that Judge Chuck can set, which was extremely fast, extremely early. Um, is, is sort of like the elephant in, in the room, but no one's really talking about that too much, much less the election date. Um, so, but it, it, the court's schedules are dictating a lot of the outcomes here. So predictions. Do we think that the case, think they'll jump the circuit ship? On the immunity yeah. case, yeah, I think they're going to, but and not not for any necessary. I mean, I think the only reason they're going to is they're going to look at it and say, you know, this is a question of first impression. It's a novel question that's never been addressed. Yeah, we can let the circuit court decide, but ultimately, it's going to have to be the Supreme Court that says a former president can be criminally right, prosecuted. Right, exactly. It's almost it's irrelevant the what the circuit thinks because they're never exactly. going to be the last word on it. it. Yeah, exactly. You know, because. It was a novel question of first impression when, when the court took up the Nixon case. And in fact, the procedural posture in Nixon case was the circuit court was going to decline to hear it on the basis that it wasn't a proper interlocutory appeal. And the Supreme Court stepped in and took it itself. Right. right. And then, it, and then you know, the Supreme Court acknowledged in Nixon that there's no constitutional basis for immunity. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Constitution. And they found the basis for civil immunity from the common law and, and mentioned in there, you know, there's, there's dicta in there that says it might be a different outcome if it was a criminal case, blah, blah, blah. A lot of people have hung their hats on that. But what is ignored is that the court's admonition for why allowing civil damage claims after a president leaves office for conduct in office is it creates the potential that a president's decision-making on difficult issues starts to be influenced by the president's concern for what might happen to him after for his personal off. welfare. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. So Steve, let me come back to you then. Yeah. So, so if, if, uh, 
Supremes are likely to take the immunity case. Why is the circuit expediting their briefing to rule on it? Why don't they just do their normal thing and sit back and see if the Supremes take it away from them? Well, the only thing that makes sense to me is that they're saying that we can decide this on a very fast track. So, uh, Supreme Court, if you just uh, hold your horses for a couple of months, we'll give you a ruling that may uh, give shed additional light on the decision that you're about to make. I don't see any other uh, immediately apparent explanation for what they're doing. And I don't find that uh, very persuasive because my view is exactly the same as ships in that uh, I think the Supreme Court will grant uh, the request to take this case. Okay. So do we think that Trump will argue that they should take it or he didn't want the expedited review in the circuit, but he got it anyway. They overruled him. But what do we think Trump's lawyers will say? Do they want the Supreme Court to take it away from the circuit? I think they do, unless they think there's some something to be gained time-wise for having the uh, circuit court look at it first. Uh, to me, just politically, that's a risky proposition because the fact that the circuit court has already put this on an extremely fast track would be worrisome to me if I were representing Trump. Yeah. I would say he doesn't want the circuit court to take it because it's a certain loss. In the yeah, court. I agree. I think the circuit court's decision is, I, and I don't know that that would be a wrong decision by the circuit court based on the law that does exist for them. You know, the, the circuit, it's only the Supreme Court that can say, the president is immune from criminal prosecution. I, there's no basis I can see for the circuit court to say that based upon the law that it has to follow and is available. The Supreme Court has the luxury of doing what it well, wants. Well, in this circuit court, not this same panel, I don't think, but this circuit court just ruled this month in the on the civil side of the court that Trump doesn't have immunity. So does anybody really think they're going to turn around and say, oh, but he does on the criminal? I mean, I suppose that could happen. But, Steve, you looked at that opinion today. Did you see anything in there that gave a hint as to what the circuit thinks about criminal? No. I, they have a disclaimer that it doesn't apply to criminal. But I think that the logic is going to extend. I mean, you know, one of the things at issue there was the speech that Trump gave on the ellipse before uh, people went up to the Capitol and the events ensued. So I, I'm hard pressed to think that the court is going to apply a different standard in the criminal context than they did in the civil. Right, so they've kind of made themselves irrelevant that way too. So, all right, well, it looks to me, do you guys, does anybody disagree with this, that we're gonna get some interesting briefing on both the immunity um, in both courts <laughs> and in the on the 1512 issue by the Fisher folks um, over the next two months, three months or so, 
and then a decision from the court in the spring, the early spring, on these very important issues. But in the meantime, all the trial dates are just going to have to wait. Does, does anybody disagree with kind of that's how it just shakes out, no matter how you look at it? I, I agree. I, I, I don't see I don't see the D.C. case going to trial before 2025 because I just don't think the calendar is going to accommodate it. And I think the pretrial matters that remain are are too complicated, even for Judge Chutkin to try to, you know, ride, you know, roughshod over the top of them. And I don't think I, I, I actually think there will be a sentiment among the court to say, look, if we accelerate even the immunity claim, we are influencing the electoral campaign because we're acting other than in the ordinary course. What is the justification for not acting in the ordinary course? The case was brought late. This issue has come up at the time it's come up. If we handle it in the ordinary course, it won't be decided before the election, but that's not our fault. Right. I don't see what the hurry is, and I don't understand why the courts are acceding to that either. And that, that's why I was asking about the 74 precedent from the Nixon. That's primarily what the special counsel argued for why we should hurry up to the circuit. I don't think that's the reason that they did. I think Steve is right. The reason that they did is because they want to get their two cents in before the Supreme Court, you know, takes it away from them. Um, but, you know, in that Nixon case, it, he was holding evidence. Other people's rights were at issue. It, it in the normal case in criminal court, all the cases I handled, the courts are like, well, if this causes the trial date to change because you have to have legal rulings made in the meantime, like that's just how it works. There, this hurry up seems unusual to me. Uh, I set a case for trial in a status conference last Friday that the court's calendar couldn't accommodate us until October. I, and, and that's just the way right. it is. So. How does this extraordinarily complicated case with 12 million pages of discovery <laughs> get jammed into a seven-month time? Well, and the special counsel's briefing papers were like, well, the public has a right to the speedy application of the criminal law. You know, and if I were on the circuit, I would be like, and so how come you don't file this motion in every case, government? Because you don't. You don't ask us to hurry up every criminal interlocutory appeal that comes up here. Well, let me weigh in for a minute on this. Uh, I agree that if we were applying the normal rules, there's no way that uh, the case against Trump goes to trial before the election next November. But I think that we need to, uh, the reality is to the contrary. And I think that uh, there's, uh, I my prediction is this. I, the Supreme Court, if they take on the immunity case, which we agree that they will, will decide that no later than the end of June. So in theory, then Judge Tuckin could start trial in July or August and finish it before the election. Now, that will be in the height of the election season, uh, and other judges might decline to do that. <laughs> yeah, so Trump goes from his nomination, you know. Uh, You're missing something, Steve. You're missing something, Steve. Judge Cannon's going to move the Florida case 
from May 24th to July, to July 15th. 15th. Right. But uh, it's been assuming that that, that case doesn't happen. Go three right. Months. Let's assume that that That's doesn't happen. Go three months. Uh, right. but, right. but just a second. Here's the point that I want to make on that. Judge Cannon, who's a Trump appointee and who is more conservative by nature, and I'm not suggesting here that she's anything other than impartial, but I'm not sure that in that case, which has a lot of complexities of its own, that she's really going to push that case to trial in July. It's one thing to hold these trial dates now and make a big show of holding on to them and say, wait a minute, I was here first, D.C., i.e. Judge Chutkin, so I get priority. But basically what we're saying is that Judge uh, th that Trump faces trial in July one way or the other, either in Florida on the Mar-a-Lago documents issue or in D.C. on uh, whatever remains of the uh, current indictment against him regarding the 2020 election. And uh, I, I frankly think that there's a good chance that Judge Cannon's going to say that the classified information issues are going to require... Uh, a postponement of that trial. And Judge Tucker will not uh, be shy about saying, well, I'm ready to go forward with the 2020 election case. Right. So now we're back I, to I, my I scenario. Wait, I, wait, I wait, wait, you guys. So now we're back to my scenario where on Friday, Trump gets nominated at the Republican convention. And then on Monday, he goes to trial in somebody's courtroom in summer yeah. 2024. Well, that seems like insanity to me. I, I think I think Steve's only. Uh, I agree with everything Steve said, except I wasn't suggesting simply because the trial date was moved to July that it would happen to hap actually happen in right. July. Right. Yeah. She could move it again. Right. And then what's Judge Shutkin going to do? Right. So. The, and yeah. she, she keeps hopscotching and taking <laughs> calendar opportunities away from right. Shutkin in retaliation for what Chutkin did to yeah. her. Well, I mean, maybe I don't know Judge Cannon, so we'll we'll see. But don't don't. Don't forget the Georgia case. Right, I know. If it, right. If it gets yeah, set in the Georgia first, case too. If it gets set first, it doesn't leave any room for Judge Chutkin's trial. Right. Then you got New York bringing up the rear here, right? Unless Alvin decides that, to that, do the right thing and ditch that, that case. case. Never goes, that case never goes to trial. <laughs> I, actually, I think that isn't, isn't the general consensus that entire case is subject to dismissal on statute of limitations yes, grounds. Uh -huh, yeah. They just haven't got right, there yet. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, all right. So you guys heard it here first, I think. I mean, the ship's been saying for a long time, King and I too, that that, that March trial date, I mean, <laughs> she can pound on the table all she wants. I just have never been able to see that that was actually going to happen. And, um, the, you know, the appellate procedures and, and timing, you know, are what they are. So, um, you know, that's to me where the action's going to be is in the Supreme Court this spring vis-a-vis -vis Trump's legal issues. Um, and the, uh, the lower courts are going to just have to wait to see how that shakes out to, to then decide what they're going to do. So um, does anybody else want to comment about any of those issues before we turn to our last case here, which is the gag order? Okay. Hearing... Just let me, let me, I, I'm, I'm going to jump Okay. Off. All right. So Ship. appreciate uh, everybody yes. uh, coming Thank you in. for your time. It's been fun, but I got to go. All right. Go. Bye. bye. Okay. So quickly on the gag order, Judge Chutkin issued this order that said, you know, the former president couldn't say things that 
um, he was saying on Twitter or not on Twitter, but, um, you know, on his social media and, um, his lawyers properly appealed that to the DC circuit, same DC circuit. And they heard this case quickly because it concerns the conditions that the former president is subjected to that restrain his ability to do things while he's pending trial, right? So this is, as I said at the beginning, this is one of the things that you can appeal right away. And in general, the Court of Appeals agrees to hear those kinds of issues on an expedited schedule also, because the courts are supposed to be, and generally they are, concerned about not squashing people's First Amendment rights. Um, so they held this on an expedited basis. Now, I thought it was a little disingenuous of the special counsel to then turn around and use that in its pleadings on the immunity case to say, oh, well, you put this other thing in this same case on an expedited basis. So you should do the same thing for the immunity issue because the, the, the two things are not the same in terms of should it be heard quickly or not. But setting that aside. So Judge Chutkin had issued an order that basically boiled down, said that Trump was not supposed to, quote unquote, target certain people um, with respect to the case and that all interested parties in this case also were subject to these restrictions. And the order said he was not allowed to target, basically criticize the special counsel himself Um the staff of the court, the staff of the special counsel, the other lawyers in the special counsel's office, and the um, uh, clerk office staff at the courthouse, that kind of thing. Okay. And when that came out, I promptly said, you know, most of this, most of this order is unconstitutional because the courts cannot tell you that you may not speak out against the government <laughs> under most circumstances. And in order for those kinds of orders to be constitutional, even where the court has power to, to issue this kind of order, they have to be narrowly construed. And they can't be what the courts call broad or overbroad or vague. The basic idea be, being that if a judge is going to impose on you an order enforceable by the government to silence you on any topic in any way. It has to be clear to you and to the officers who are tasked with enforcing that order what it is you're not allowed to do, what it is you are allowed to do, and the court is supposed to narrowly tailor such orders so as not to chill speech because we don't want people not speaking when they have a right to because they're afraid that they might violate the order and therefore they express themselves less fulsomely than they otherwise might. Now, the former president has no problem expressing himself fulsomely, I would say, in most circumstances. But, you know, these rules are made for all and sundry, not just him. So when that order came out, I looked at it and I thought immediately, this, this order is overbroad and it's vague and therefore it's unconstitutional and the Court of Appeals will certainly do something about that. And they did. So the president's lawyers appealed that to the circuit. The circuit on its face said that they affirmed the order in part and, you know, reversed the order in part. Um, and a lot of the mainstream media, the reporting on it was, well, you know, 
Trump appealed that, but the circuit upheld the, the district court. And, you know, basically it was a loss for Trump. And I found that very interesting because if you actually read the courts, the circuit court's opinion, what they actually did was said that the district court's order was unconstitutional um, and they modified it in several different ways in order to bring it into line with the Constitution. Uh, and they sent it back. So although the language, they didn't slam Judge Chutkin and say, oh, well, you know, this is ridiculously unconstitutional. In a more genteel way, they kind of did. So they said that the it absolutely the former president has a right to criticize the special counsel himself. It's it's you know fundamental to our rights as American citizens that we get to complain about the government um, and the official who holds X Y Z office. Um, you know, and I have said long and loud as a criminal defense practitioner and First Amendment advocate that you know, you should be entitled, and I think are entitled under the First Amendment, to say anything you damn well please about the prosecutor who is putting you on trial for criminal conduct. Um, and so the circuit said, no, the order is unconstitutionally overbroad because it includes the special counsel. Um, they also narrowed the part that applied even to the witnesses. So Judge Chutkin's original order had said that, that Trump couldn't target people who reasonably were going to be witnesses in the case and talk about them and their testimony and so forth. But the language was so broad that the circuit pointed out that that could mean that Trump can't complain about, you know, the people that used to work for him, Bill Barr, for example, or other people who are commenting about him not because they're witnesses in the case or that they're going to testify against him, but because, you know, there are other people that are involved in the political hurly-burly. And so the court narrowed that. They said it was unconstitutionally overbroad. And they narrowed it to say that he could, the only thing he couldn't do with respect to witnesses was to talk about people who are or reasonably are going to be witnesses and they're in relation to the fact that they may appear as witnesses. So, um, and they gave specific examples. So the, Trump had said something on social media about Mark Meadows with respect to his immunity deal, whether he was going to be a witness. The court said, that's the kind of thing where, yeah, he's talking about a witness in the case and their relationship to the case. That's out. You can't do that because that impedes the flow of justice. But... Uh, on another social media post that Judge Chutkin had a problem with, I think it was about Bill Barr, um, you know, he's complaining about Barr, who may or may not be a witness, but what Trump was talking about was not about Barr being a witness or the things that he might say. And so the court cut that prohibition on talking to, basically they're saying Trump is using his social media to indirectly talk to witnesses, people who might be witnesses. Um, that he can't do that, but only if what he's saying is talking about them in the context of the actual trial, not in other ways. Um, and that, I think, is constitutional. It's, you know, no judge, including the Supremes, are going to say that a trial judge can't tell a defendant, 
you know, you can't do things that indirectly communicate your views about witnesses to those witnesses. You're, that's not the way justice works. It's supposed to be in the courtroom, not on the street corner, not, you know, on social media. And so witnesses are kind of in a special category. But then the other part of the order had to do with the special counsel's team, their staff, the court's team, that kind of thing. And interestingly, they noted that Judge Chutkin had not made findings that the former president's statements were influencing the jury pool. That's usually what you see in these kind of orders, that the prohibition is on lawyers and the parties talking about their evidence in the newspapers or on their social media in order to try to influence the people that are going to be on the jury. And in this case, Judge Chutkin didn't make any findings in that regard. She said that the problem was that Trump's comments about the special counsel's people and the court's people intimidated them and that, that Trump's supporters were then doxing those people and threatening them. And they mentioned in the opinion, if you want to read for yourself, it's up on the court's site, you know, specific things that people called into the court and used racial epithets against the judge um, and other kinds of ugly comments against people in the special counsel's office that they felt threatened, that kind of thing. So the not that Trump himself did any of that, of course, but, you know, people who purport to be supporters of his. So the court said this was a balancing situation, but they still said that the line that Judge Chutkin drew was overly broad because they pointed out, for example, the language was so broad that Trump couldn't even say things like that. It was, you know, that the people in the clerk's office were great people or that, you know, it was a pleasure to work with them, that kind of thing. So they, they really, I thought, as a First Amendment person, did do a pretty good job of drawing the line there, saying, you know, you can't tell defendants that they can't talk about the prosecutor himself. You can't tell defendants that they can't talk about the clerk's office, right? Um, it has to be, again, linked to some way in which it's actually impeding the case that the court is handling. And so they, in order to narrow it, to bring it within the confines of the First Amendment. They said that there had to be an additional mens rea requirement that Judge Shutkin had not imposed on the comments about the special counsel's people and the court's people. So he has to say things that about them or directed kind of directly or indirectly to them that he would know would cause interference with their work on the case. So... His lawyers had argued, and I think this is a good point, that, you know, he's not really responsible for what people do with his comments, right? Like he's not encouraging people to pick up the phone and threaten the judge um, or threaten, you know, the lawyers working in the special counsel's office. The fact that, you know, unhinged people decide to pick up the phone and, and threaten the staff in the special counsel's office is not something that he's advocating. So it's a little bit of a fuzzy line. Um I'm uncomfortable a little bit with this, some of the opinion where they're kind of saying, you know, Trump should know that that kind of thing is going to happen if he goes a little too far. But they did impose this mens rea requirement that he, he has to know or has to reasonably think that the consequences of his speech is that people will do things that will interfere with the logistical functioning of the trial. So they narrowed the whole order down significantly from what Judge Chutkin had initially ordered. And also there was another portion that I had initially identified I, that I thought also was unconstitutional. 
she had directed the order initially to all interested parties. And so Trump's lawyers, of course, were like, well, who does that cover? Right. And it highlights the problem with these kinds of orders where you're trying to prevent people from speaking is that the law requires the limitations to be extremely clear. So people know exactly who can and can't speak and what they can and can't say. And directing the order to all interested parties is, is like the exact opposite of that. Right. So, um, but in a sort of post-order hearing, Judge Chutkin had clarified that in her order, all interested parties means the parties, meaning the government and Donald Trump and their lawyers. So it's not, you know, other witnesses necessarily or people associated with Trump, you know, his sons or, you know, other people in his orbit are not bound by the order. Um, and so the Court of Appeals adopted her limitation as being part of the order. So I thought it was very interesting that the the mainstream media reporting of this was radically different, actually, from what the court actually decided to do the circuit. They they upheld what she did, Judge Shutkin, kind of in form only, and then basically rewrote the order to make it come within the actual First Amendment. So I want to say one more thing about that and then throw it open to King and Steve for kind of comments and reflections on this. So the ACLU filed a brief on Trump's behalf in that case, sort of an old-fashioned ACLU-type brief, making the points that I'd been making on Twitter that this this is not that difficult. The way this order reads is unconstitutional on its face. It's overbroad and vague and... And this is just not really up for grabs. Um, So I was happy to see that the circuit agreed, but I think more on a saving face kind of platform, they they didn't want to slam just Chutkin too hard uh, for her effort to draw the lines correctly. So that's where we are. But because of the way the uh, appellate decision reads, I'm somewhat doubtful that the president's lawyers will try to petition the Supreme Court on that. And I think it's really unlikely that the Supremes would take that case. But uh, let's see what the rest of the guys think. So King and Steve, thoughts on this issue? I have. You covered it perfectly. I I don't have much to add other than a similar issues were raised in the Georgia case. Uh, but unlike Judge Chutkin, they came up in the context of whether a defendant violated the terms of his uh, uh, bond or bail. Oh, okay. uh, and the judge viewed it as sort of a contractual issue. The order approved the conditions of release of the defendant. And the prosecution argued that he had violated those terms by talking about uh, talking poorly about witnesses in the case. So the, the, I think they worked it out with a new order. Uh, but you may see more of this in the future from more than one court. Okay. Steve, thoughts? Uh, Trump said on social media after the DC circuit ruled that he'd appeal, but uh, that may well be bravado because I agree with you that 
he got out of the DC circuit, all he could reasonably expect to get. I think it's pretty unlikely that the Supreme Court would grant cert or that if they did, that they would draw the line significantly differently than the DC circuit has drawn it. And if you step back and look at the bigger picture, this is really the, this gag order issue is the least of, of important of the issues that we've been talking about. Immunity would mean that Trump gets a pass on all of the criminal charges. And the discussion about 1512 goes to two of the four charges against him in the DC uh, case. And it, it could take them completely out of place. So those have uh, enormous consequences. What we're talking about with the gag order is just how far he can go in criticizing people that may be uh, he perceives as his political opponents or who may be uh, witnesses at trial. And that's really much uh, smaller uh, fish. Right. <clears throat> okay. So the last thing I wanted to do was maybe answer one or two questions that I think we did not cover. I, I feel like we covered a lot of the questions that folks sent me but there's one or two that I, I think we didn't. And if we don't answer your question tonight, folks, and uh, or I don't think it was fully answered by the, the discussion, I'm going to go back through them again in the morning and I will write people back if, if we missed you. So this question was basically circling back to the 11th Circuit. Why do we think Meadows' appeal to have, or his, his action to have the case removed to federal court, wh why is that getting denied? <laughs> Um, and sort of parallel with that, do you think Trump's lawyers thought, sort of predicted that or saw that that's what was going to happen and that's why they didn't try to remove it? I've already answered this third one, which is, I think, which is that Meadows can petition for cert if the 11th Circuit rules against him. I think the language in the statute does allow for that. So, guys, what do you think? Why is Meadows losing? And do you think Trump's people saw that, that that was likely and decided not to test that themselves? Because they didn't move for the removal. Well, I was going to give Kingfisher, a, a, a Kingmaker, a chance to comment on that. But since he's not, I'll step in. I think that... Uh, Trump's attorneys decided that they would benefit from any ruling in favor of Meadows so that there was no need for them to join directly uh, in that issue. Um, and I think that the what's practically at stake in that issue, it doesn't make the charges go away. It simply changes which court they're tried in. You're either tried in state court in Atlanta, or you're tried in federal court in Atlanta. And so the only practical difference as I see it uh, is that you'd get a different judge. I'm not sure that I think that makes very much difference, frankly. Uh, and the other diff difference, which could be important, is that the jury pool would be different. If you're tried in the state court, the jury pool is going to be drawn from Fulton County, which is basically Atlanta, and is going to be a decidedly more liberal jury pool. If you're tried in federal court, you're going to be it's going to the jury pool is going to be drawn from the Northern District of Georgia, which is a broader geographic region. 
is going to include the, the suburbs of Atlanta and is going to be more conservative. So I think that all other things being equal, you'd prefer to be tried in federal court in front of a, a jury pool that is going to be broader and uh, potentially more conservative. But whether that's worth joining in the appeal uh, is, is a different issue. Uh, I agree with Steve. Uh, I would add a couple of points, though, that among the reasons I was surprised that Trump did not join Meadows, uh, that is, if he's in federal court, the immunity issue would be front and center uh, in in the federal arena. And he could, uh, if he if he could appeal to the Eleventh Circuit as opposed to the D.C. Circuit, if he lost in the district court. Yeah, he'd have a better <clears> chance <throat> so he, with them, I think, on that. He would have a better chance on that issue, and um, so that would for, for that reason alone, I was surprised that he did not try to remove the case. As to why Meadows is losing, <laughs> uh, I, I think it's the uh, recent decision by the Eleventh Circuit on an unrelated statute, uh, but similar language, in which they held that former federal employees were not covered. That's why he's losing uh, in the circuit, right? I agree. That's that right. case is turning on a an arcane issue because that's how the appellate judges roll. But I think he lost in the district court, don't you? Because it's a question of framing. If you, and this is something that that I think non-lawyers don't always grasp what happens in the courts, especially in the appellate courts, is how you frame the question sometimes dictates what the answer is. So if you're asking yourself, well, does a federal officer have a right to violate the law? And does that, you know, does that come within the scope of their duties, violating the law? If you ask the question that way, (laughs) then the answer looks like no. (laughs) If you ask the question, well, does is there any basis on which the activities that this employee undertook fits within their federal job if i factor out the politics and i factor out you know the um you, you know the personalities but if i just look at what happened is does this fall within their duties or not arguably then that i think is a is still a difficult question but it could go either way. But it looked to me like the way the district court judge in Atlanta framed it, it was no from the beginning because of the way he asked the question. Um, Okay. One other question we have here is what if the Supreme Court does rule on immunity in favor of Trump? What happens at that that point? Would this ruling have any effect on pending cases for his co-defendants? Okay. So I'll answer the first one and then let Steve let you answer the second one. So if the Supreme Court rules that Trump has immunity, that's it. They will order the case in D.C. dismissed. End of story. End of story. Um, So let's say they do rule that way, Steve. What happens now? He doesn't have any active co-defendants actually in that case. He's the only one indicted. He's got five unindicted co-conspirators, but he's the only defendant. So technically in that case it wouldn't affect anyone else 
But let's say they do say that Trump has immunity. Um, is that going to affect co-defendants in any of the other cases, do we think? Well, it not only would take out the DCE case, but it would also take out the Georgia case against him. But it wouldn't directly impact the co-defendants in the Georgia case. Uh, it would give you some interesting arguments, don't you think, about if he's immune, how can you be conspiring with him to do something that's illegal if he's allowed to do it? Well, but you've run you run into this in, in terms of cons, inspiring with undercover agents and conspiracy cases, and the law generally is that that's not uh, that doesn't give you a get out of jail free card. The fact well, it does that if they're the only other conspirator, not to be undercover agents. It does if they're the only co-conspirator. Right. Uh, that, but, yeah. But Trump's not the only co-conspirator here. Right. So but it would be it would generate the real answer is it would generate more motions to dismiss. <laughs> right. That's that's what will happen. So, OK, this question is if since Fisher probably won't be known until the end of June, what's the timeline on immunity? We covered that. But if all of that is likely to be by June, then the question is, could the Supreme Court issue a stay that affects Georgia also? So general rule is the Supreme Court doesn't affect in terms of stays. They don't affect anything that they aren't asked to affect. Right. And so literally, I can't see how they would be inclined to on their own issue a stay in the Georgia case based on immunity or the 1512. You guys see any possibility that what the Supreme Court does would affect Georgia, other than what you just said, Steve, that if they find Trump immune, obviously that would cover Georgia, too. Well, it's, it's the supremacy clause. So if they mm -hmm. find Trump immune, then Georgia is bound to obey that. Right. But other than that, do, can you see any reason why what if, let's say, SCOTUS does fifteen twelve? that's not going to affect Georgia at all, right? <laughs> That will not, but but it's possible that uh, the Supreme Court, in its opinion on fifteen twelve and presidential immunity, could address First Amendment. And to that extent, mm -hmm. if the if the Supreme Court comes down on how First Amendment rights relate to what happened on January sixth and its lead up, uh, that could affect. Uh, the, the charges in Georgia. Right. Well, so again, well, let me let me jump in on on this. I, I happen to think that the immunity claim is not all that strong in some ways. I think that in a lot of ways, Trump has a much stronger first uh, first amendment defense claim than he does an immunity claim. So. I am in sympathy with the point that, that Kingmaker just made about how, uh, about the significance of that, except that I, don't, I think the Supreme Court will bend over backwards uh, to avoid saying anything about a First Amendment defense in the context of ruling on immunity. I think they're going to be extremely careful not to get into that. That's yeah, an entirely separate issue. I agree, but they may well go there on the 1512 because it has a strong flavor of that. So to answer your question, this person who wrote this question, it's kind of the same thing. It won't necessarily have a direct effect 
the immunity, if the Supreme Court says Trump is immune, that will have a direct effect on the case in Georgia for sure. But it also will, um, uh, like I said with the last question, it will spawn more motions from either Trump, if he's still in the case for whatever reason, or the other lawyers, right, saying that for the reasons that the Supreme Court articulated in his case, the the case in Georgia should be dismissed or the other counts, you know, in D.C. should be dismissed, et cetera. Um, okay, so let me see. Um, Okay, so here's kind of a basic question, and then, and then we'll, I think we'll end on this. Why wasn't presidential immunity brought up before the indictment? How can the case start if you're immune from prosecution? <laughs> so this is really, I tweeted about this, what, last week. This is the difference between lawyering in court and lawyering before the case starts. So a lot of white-collar lawyering happens before the case hits the courthouse. And if you're doing it correctly, the white, the white collar lawyering results in you never going to the courthouse, right? Because for one reason or another, you persuade the prosecutors, they got the wrong client, they, got, they don't understand that what they're talking about as criminal conduct is actually ordinary conduct engaged in XYZ industry that your client happens to be in that they think your client is a defendant and actually he's a witness, you know, all, the, all these reasons why you think the prosecutor has the case wrong and you go and talk to them and you tell them this and hopefully you persuade them to your position and then they don't indict your client at all. So Steve, do you think that as a longtime prosecutor and then an even longer term white collar lawyer, do you think that they were able to talk to the special counsel about immunity before the indictment? And if so, would they even have been listening, do you think? Well, they, I, th I think at least in theory, had the ability to talk to special counsel. Whether or not they did, I don't know. And I'm very dubious that it would have had any impact. I think that the question uh, is a matter of pure logic uh, is an interesting one, but in the way the criminal system actually works, unless you can persuade the prosecutor up front that you've got immunity or that the uh, conduct and issue doesn't technically violate the statute, you can't prevent the prosecutor from charging you. And your only recourse then is to file a motion to uh, dismiss. Uh, so that's just the reality of the system. Right. Okay, so I think that's all That's all that I have. Uh, Kingmaker, Steve, you have any last remarks for tonight before we sign off? I want to add one thing. I want to read a, uh, uh, a pri uh, priceless uh, post by someone who listened to this tonight. Uh -huh. His <clears throat> handle is Logos. Philos, I think I pronounced that right. When I, in response to my talking about a chess game as to mm. who goes first and when and whatnot, quote, Judge Cannon has occupied the middle of the chess board vis-a-vis mm. -vis the calendar. Yeah. That is key. 
and she's not going to surrender. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll send that to Chip. He'll love that because that's exactly what he thinks. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Chip, thank you. In absentia, Kingmaker, of course, thank you. Thank you, Steve. This is his first time doing these spaces, you guys. So thanks for chiming in. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening. Kingmaker, you last you got the last word? Just thank you, Leslie. Great job as always. Thanks. Good night, everyone. <laughs>